Strangers from distant lands, friends of old, you have been summoned here to listen to My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. The Lord of the Rings trilogy stands upon the brink of its 20-year anniversary. None can escape it. You will unite or you will fall. Each race is bound to this fate, this one doom. Your coming to us is as the footsteps of doom. You bring great evil here, ring bearer. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, now known as J.R.R. Tweeting. Today's episode is The Lady of the Wood, as our fellowship looks to regroup in the woods of Lothlorien. But first, our spoiler warning. While The Ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies have not. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even The Hobbit films. Just one reminder up top, if you are a person who listens on Spotify, and now that I'm saying this, I realize Spotify is in the middle of this really ugly discourse about Joe Rogan, but all that aside, if you are listening on Spotify, you can now leave reviews there after you listen to a couple episodes. Uh, leaving reviews there or on any other podcast app will allow our podcast to be found more easily, and then hopefully we can expand and do more coverage in the future. In the spirit of trilogies... We have decided to do our own little trilogy detailing the history of elvish settlements and culture in Middle-earth. Over the next three episodes, two of which covering our normal fellowship timeline, and then the third, our deep dive into Legolas, we'll go over as much as we humanly, or elfishly, can cover. (laughs) So here it goes. I hate the elves. 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 I really hate them. That said, let us also begin with some self-owning because I believe very firmly in truth and accountability. The things that we talk about in this podcast are going to be about, you know, reading the 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 movies as a text on their own um, and not trying to, you know, unnecessarily, you know, either beat down or beat down the movies or beat down the books in favor of the other. They are they are two separate pieces of art doing two very different things. At the very start of this podcast, we agreed to not rely too much on the books. I believe I even pinned myself to the cross heel, nailed myself to the cross here of saying that I would do my best to never ever bring them in where it wasn't absolutely necessary to bring them in. So, in the spirit of that, hello everybody, my name is Icarus. Does anybody smell burning? Today, we're going to summarize the Silmarillion in full, in 15 minutes. To begin with, here's some brief context. For the sake of terms, you're going to hear me use a few place names in the next 15 or so minutes. So here they are. Get their flash, get your flashcards out. The first is Amman, which is the continent in the far west of Arda, which is Earth. It is populated by the Ainur, or the Valar, and their servants, and the elves. Valinor is a western region of Amman, where the Valar dwell. The elves can enter Valinor, but don't necessarily live there. Some of uh, some of the cities of Eldamar, for example, include Tyrion and Algolande, and Eldamar, which is the eastern region of Amon, which is on the coast, is where the elves dwell. Middle-earth, by contrast, is the continent east of Amon, beyond the Isle of Numenor. And finally, Beleriand is the northwestern region of Middle-earth. By the time the Lord of the Rings starts, it has been sunk beneath the Sundering Seas. And now some quick myth-busting. The elves were not born in Valinor. They were born in the east at a lake called Quivianen. 
The Valar then saw them, decided they liked them, and sent a call for the elves to come west. Some did, some did not. We'll get into more of that over the next two episodes. What's important here is, one, the elves did not start their existences in, in Amon. Two, going west to join the Valar is seen as more of a sign of moral goodness among the elves. And three, the east is associated with badness. Classic British mindset. Amon, and Valinor especially, is and was equivalent to the Garden of Earthly Delights, as close to paradise as you could get on Earth. Spiritually, aesthetically, and otherwise, everything the elves could have ever possibly wanted was available to them in Amon. There, they lived, they loved, and they developed crafts. They were especially good at smithing, making beautiful jewelry, things like that. In Valinor, there were two enormous beautiful trees that provided light to all of Amon. Those trees were called Telperion, or the White Tree, and Laurelin, the Golden Tree. These trees straight up fucking glowed. They were considered in many ways the literal spiritual heart and soul of Valinor, and by extension, the world. Now, on to some stories. There once lived an elf named Finway. Finway married another elf named Muriel, and together they had a son named Kira Finway. Birth in Kirafinway was such a massive nightmare that Muriel, like our good friend Padme Amidala, literally lost the will to live. Except not only did she lose the will to live, she refused the chance to be reborn in a new body. Giving birth to Kirafinway was such a horrible experience, she effectively gave up immortality. She was so utterly wiped. Kirafinway and his father, Finway, had a fairly good relationship. Kurafenway, who I will now refer to by his other and more popular name, Feanor, was, was Fenway's only son, and he idolized his father. Except one day, his father fell in love with a new elf and wed her. Her name was Indus, and she bore Fenway four more children. Findus, Fingolfin, Ereme, and Finarfin. This was extremely bad news for Feanor, who grew jealous over what he saw as his father splitting the love he had for Feanor to give to his new wife and children. Feanor steadfastly believed that there was a distinct separation between him and his half-siblings, and the blood between them was pretty much always bad. Anyways, Feanor became a craftsman, fell in love with an elf named Nerdanel, and had seven sons, who we've previously spoken about. Those sons are, in sort of order, Maedhras, Maglor, Kelogorm, Caranthir, Kurifin, and the Ambarusa, who are the twins also known as Amrod and Amras. Feanor, while Nerdanel was giving birth to all of these children, became one of the most gifted smiths in Amman. Wanting to prove his mettle, uh -huh, as a smith, Feanor set out to create something unlike anything before seen in Arda. Here, however, is why we're talking about this in our episode concerning Galadriel. Through his half-brother Finarfin, Feanor was Galadriel's uncle. It is said that he was inspired to create gems of such glowing beauty um, because he saw the glowing golden hair of Galadriel. Wanting to have something of that light for himself, he asked his niece for a single strand of her hair. Three times she denied him, and this, some elves argue, was what prompted Feanor to look elsewhere for his feat of smithing prowess. Instead of using Galadriel's hair, Feanor instead crafted three gems using a new material he invented, and by capturing the light of Telperion and Laurelin, the two trees of Valinor, he created something that would truly change the face of Earth. For a time, this was fine, because the trees still glowed and there was light aplenty. But in the dark precipices of, of the world, Morgoth plotted. He sowed seeds of distrust among the elves, and the smiths, which had once produced only works of art, soon produced works of war, weapons. 
Feanor quarreled with his half-brother Fingolfin in one of the most famous scenes in the Silmarillion and drew a sword, the first of any elf to threaten injury to another elf in Valinor. In response to his threat, the Valar exiled him to the north of Amman, a place called Formenos, far from his family. They also took the Silmarils and stored them in an iron lockbox in Valinor. Meanwhile, Morgoth used this discord to continue to rip and tear at the fabric of elvish society. Feanor served out his sentence and returned to Eldamar, and there begrudgingly made nice with Fingolfin. But, of course, nothing could ever be that simple, and during the party where that reconciliation happened, Morgoth stole into Valinor with the hope of his spider-ish friend Ungoliant, and destroyed the light of the trees of Valinor. This is called the Darkening of Valinor. Morgoth also, of course, stole the Silmarils. Feanor, enraged, set an oath for his seven sons. They would go to the ends of the earth to recover the Silmarils, no matter the cost. Here is the oath in full because it's spectacular writing. Be he foe or friend, be he foul or clean, brood of Morgoth or bright Vala, Alda or Maya or aftercomer, man yet unborn upon Middle-earth, neither law nor love nor league of swords, dread nor danger, not doom itself, shall defend from Feanor and Feanor's kin, whose hideth or hoardeth, or in hand taketh, finding keepeth, or afar casteth a Silmaril. This swear we all. Death we will deal him ere day's ending. Woe unto world's end. Our word hear thou, Eru Allfather. To the everlasting darkness doom us if our deed faileth. On the holy mountain hear and witness, and our vow remember, Manwe and Barda. Feanor then tried to convince a whole bunch of the elves to cross the seas with him and go east in search of Morgoth and the Silmarils. Though he tar- framed it in terms of the Valar dictator's fuck'em, lots of elves went with both to get back at Morgoth, but also for far, far less noble reasons. Like here, for example, is why Galadriel went. She swore no oaths, but the words of Feanor concerning Middle-earth kindled a desire in her heart as she was eager to see those wide, unguarded lands and rule a realm of her own. The elves go east. Some of this we've covered already. The kinslayings, the war against Morgoth, and the Balrogs. But there are a few really interesting points here. At the point city of, port city of Alqualande on the eastern coast of Amman, Feanor finally realized he couldn't get to Middle-earth across the sea if he didn't have any MF ships. <laughs> <laughs> the good news was that the people of Alqualande were shipbuilders. The bad news was that they wanted sweet fuck all to do with Feanor and his crusade. Feanor, being a calm and reasonable sort of lad, sieged them, tried to have them all killed, and then stole their ships. As Alqualande burned, he made a promise to the followers of his brothers Fingolfin and Finarfin, who had come with. Feanor, his sons, and their followers would take the first ships to Middle-earth, and would then recur- return to take them across. The Valar, enormously fucked off at the shedding of blood in Paradise, made it clear that any elves continued to, who continued to follow Feanor across the sea to Middle-earth would thenceforth be banned from Valinor. Reader, a whole lot of them went anyway, including Galadriel. And here's the thing, Feanor didn't come back with the ships, so they had to go the long hard way. They had to cro- cut across an enormous ice field called the Halkaraxa. It was freezing, it was bitter, Thousands died, but they were so singularly committed to colonizing Middle-earth that still they went. Galadriel went. 
We'll cover more in our subsequent episodes, but for now, I want to leave you with this thought. Galadriel is a drill tweet, specifically this drill tweet. If the zoo bans me for hollering at the animals, I will face God and walk backwards into hell. The funny thing is that there's a famous tweet about that tweet about someone saying is like, I think about the lines, I will face God and walk backwards into hell. And they think it's Dante and then realize it's drill, which is just perfect for you to use to uh, wrap up the segment. Awesome. Uh, But no, I guess in a way, I'm kind of the target audience for Emily Spiel here as someone who will never fuck around with the Silmarillion (laughs) um, and who's only like real guiding text is the movies, which is, you know, controversial to say the least. Um, But this actually does. I knew the anti-Galadriel propaganda was coming from Emily, (laughs) but I think this properly actually kind of squares up some context in the past that actually makes the own research I did for this episode and the coming couple episodes actually kind of tie it all together. Because I did have questions about, it says Galadriel kind of wanted to make her own kingdom over here. That sounds a little, you know, colonizing to me. Is that really what happened? And it turns out, yep. Yeah, it is. So (laughs) it's, it's one of these things. So like, as I was trying to do this, I was trying to be as like objective as I possibly could. And because, you know, lots of people do rightly like Galadriel. And I think she's one of the more interesting characters, but I also think like, you know, the, the motivation that I gave for Galadriel going to middle earth and isn't me editorializing at all. That is literally a, a direct quote from the Silmarillion so like that is Galadriel as characterized um, and I think when you like start to break down a lot of these like important characters in the Silmarillion and a lot of the important Elvish characters in, in Lord of the Rings and um, when you put their stuff in bullet point form you're like god these guys kind of suck like they are kind of assholes um, and obviously you know Galadriel has uh, you know her, her redemption bit and she does overall do more good than bad but um, I think this kind of like pervasive view that she's basically an angel um is like one not true but also boring because she is like a really really messy bitch (laughs) yeah and i'll you know i'll kind of like fall on this sword here because um in my interpretation of the films just as films themselves uh she is very much kind of that eight angel kind of figure just kind of a pillar and i can now see diving deeper into the legendarium how that's a very flattening of the character if nothing else um so i do like getting this context so now i can better understand kind of what's going on outside of the scope of like the two years of the like main rising action of you know the lord of the rings yeah, no. So what I was going to say is I feel like um, I feel like it is uh, only fair to point out that in, in Elvish terms, um, Galadriel does make this call when she's like effectively a teenager slash young person. So maybe, you know, maybe it's a bit much to be like, OK, she is a total asshole for, for having done this. But, you know, I mean, um, what uses teenagerdom as like a, a, a like a way of measuring these things if her teenagers are literally hundreds and hundreds of years long um and maybe she does just go uh because because she really is just like that you know what i mean um, and and she does you know ultimately rule over this one region of middle earth for a really substantial period of time um and so is it like really just like a teenage indiscretion or is that really her character do 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 who knows <laughs> It could be both even. Um, so no, that's very, that's very interesting. Um, and I'm sure, or it sounds like we're going to get a glimpse into Galadriel's life at a different point, uh, in the upcoming Lord of the Rings show, which will have a couple episodes coming out soon or may already be out by the time you hear this, um, about that. But, 
Um, it'll be interesting because, yeah, I didn't even contextualize her age as part of it because because I kind of have this perception of her as like an eternal being because that's how she's presented at like the end of the third age as we see it. Um, I don't think of her as aging into that character more so as her kind of being a constant, but that isn't correct on my part. So um, again, appreciate the context. Yeah, I feel like I don't know. I, I don't know if I would say like it isn't correct because I think it is like it is um is like an accurate and good kind of take in some ways because this is the problem of immortality and this is also kind of why i feel a bit meh about the elves in general which is that um you know ten thousand years i hate to be the like captain obvious figure here but ten thousand years is a really long time <laughs> like it's a really really long time that gets us back to the start of recorded history like in, in real life um, and so to have these characters that are effectively that old um starts to raise questions about like you know the the depth of personality that they must have like necessarily developed over these you know thousands and thousands of years and can anything after a certain point be kind of hand waved away as like a matter of just like youthful indiscretion um and i feel like you know this may be getting kind of in the weeds a bit but you read a lot of things that people will say about like particularly the sons of feanor and particularly the younger sons of feanor and they'll try and kind of walk it walk back the kind of evilness of a lot of the things that they do with well you know they're they're really young um and i'm like but but they're not really young they're like 900 years old and i think you know for us anything more than 100 years is really is you know, kind of eternal in a lot of ways. And so you seeing Galadriel as this kind of eternal, like immovable kind of figure, this, this like stalwart of history is I think totally accurate. Um, and where for me, the kind of whole question of the elves starts to really like founder in some ways, because I'm like, what do you do with characters that are this long, like the, that live this long, you know, they, they make mistakes, but those mistakes are extra bad because they've got this experience. Um, and, and I think like, um, you know, the, the angel like qualities is in some ways like a good bit of like agitprop from the elves themselves because <laughs> they managed to take like, you know, I mean, a lot of the stuff really only takes place over 50, 50, 100 years. And that's nothing. That's a blink of an eye to them. But to humans, that's their whole lives. And so they get to be like, oh, well, you know, it was a youthful indiscretion when I was young and it wasn't really that huge amount of time. But imagine if Aragorn had spent a hundred of years of his 210 fucking up that much. Like they would have lost the war. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, that's a great point. Um, I'm going to make like the worst digression or tangent in the world here. It's um, I've been recently reading The Dark Knight Returns um, by famous right wing crank Frank Miller. Um, and there's a point in there where uh, Commissioner Gordon and his replacement are talking about the question of the Batman. And at a certain point, he just says, it's too big. It's too big for us to really wrap our heads around like the impact of the Batman. And I'll stop talking about Batman now. <laughs> but it's just like, we, we understand the kind of wisdom a human can accumulate in 100 years. Um, so when you start dealing with creatures that live for like 5,000 years, like, yeah, maybe she's a teen at 900 years old, but you don't like wisdom goes at the same speed, I would think for yeah. humans and elves. It, it's really hard. It's again, it's, it's too big. It, it's like almost impossible to wrap your head around, which again, I think that's part of the goal of fantasy is to kind of engage with concepts and ideas that are almost too big to wrap your head around. And part of the reason we're doing this podcast is trying to wrap our head around it. Yeah. Well, and I think it's also interesting because like this, this like immensity of the scale. And also I think like you're totally right to say like wisdom grows at, at the same speed, regardless of who you are, because, um, you know, as we start off the, this part of the story, um, we have lost this kind of, um, immortal, eternal wisdom, um, through 
Gandalf, um, and Gandalf is no longer here, and Gandalf is no longer with us, um, and instead we get Galadriel, and I think it is kind of significant that we never really have Galadriel and Gandalf interacting at the same time and in the same way, because they are both sort of kind of as old as each other, um, and they both effectively have like the same amount of wisdom or intelligence or however you want to like frame it, but they go at it from wildly different um, starting points. And so the, the way they display that kind of wisdom and, um, you know, work towards their wider goals are very different. You know, Gandalf comes across as this like sort of humble pilgrim, the great pilgrim or the white pilgrim. Um, and, and Galadriel comes across as, as a queen. She is a queen or a witch or a sorcerer. Um, and, and, the fact that you kind of can't necessarily have the competition um, or like the kind of underlying or inherent competition because between Gandalf and Galadriel, because Gandalf just got murked, um, is I think a really fascinating also kind of uh, tacit admission on behalf of Tolkien of like the, the potential difficulties of writing about immortality like this. A sad, wary, and diminished fellowship arrives at the wooded realm of Lothlorien. To some, Lothlorien is a fairy tale, a chapter from the elder days that time hasn't touched. To others, it is a tale of sorcery and despair, the realm of an elf witch. But to all, for now, it is a refuge from the night and the orcs that come with it. Immediately, the wood seems altogether surreal. This does not look or feel like any forest we've been to, Yes, that may just be the soundstage they're using, but the aesthetic choice cannot be denied. The air feels different here. While Gimli explains his folk story about the Lady in the Wood, Frodo hears her in his head. The lunatic is in my head. <laughs> the lunatic is in my head. Wait, no, it's a sound clip we brought you into this episode with. Gimli goes on, saying he will never be owned. I have the eyes of a hawk and ears of a fox. I can never be owned as such. Anyone who understands the language of cinema knows what happens next. He is owned. He steps right into the face of a sharp elven arrow. The dwarf breathes so loud we could have shot him in the dark. Meet Haldir, the March Warden of Lothlorien. The Fellowship are surrounded, and they are to be escorted to the Lady right away. They are expected, Haldir explains, turning his eye to Frodo specifically. We come now to Callus Galadon, though I don't think the theatrical edition ever says those words, which is probably why I'm mispronouncing them. This is where Kate Blanchett rules, high above us mere mortals, in trees bathed in starlight. There's some dude next to Kate Blanchett when the Fellowship arrive, who we will talk about later, but the film knows we don't care about anyone besides Kate, so why bother caring about him now? Well, okay, he does say something, mainly, where's Gandalf? Peter Jackson going with the Poochie model of dialogue, whenever Gandalf's not on screen, <laughs> all the other characters should ask, where's Gandalf? Galadriel knows, though, he's fallen into shadow. 
Thinking our team needs a pep talk, Galadriel puts on her high school football cap and goes Coach Taylor on us. The quest stands upon the edge of a knife. Stray but a little and it will fail to the ruin of all. Yet hope remains while the company is true. Galadriel's a great public speaker, making eye contact with each and everyone as she orates. Some are spellbound, but Boromir is clearly dismayed about something. Pin that thought. She puts her pep talk on autopilot eventually. While she's waxing words of hope to quell despair, she turns to Frodo and starts speaking to him. In his mind. Don't make me play Plink Floyd again. I'll fucking do it. (laughs) Cut to a bit later, and the Fellowship is making camp for the night. A dirge fills the air. A lament for Gandalf. What do they say about him? I have not the heart to tell you. For me, the grief is still too near. Finally, we settle on our two dads, Aragorn and Boromir. Strider recommends the captain of Gondor get some sleep. These borders are safe, and there are few feather beds between here and Mordor. I will find no rest here, Boromir says. He's clearly all up in his own head and heart, carrying over from the scene with Galadriel. But this time he doesn't have Kate Blanchett to blame for being all hot and bothered. Boromir speaks some truth to Aragorn here, though perhaps this is the first time he's saying it to himself. He loves his father, but his father's outlook is dim, and with that, the outlook of his people. Eyes now turn to Boromir to set things right, and though he may be Gondor's most complete human being, a little Alche reference for you, he doesn't know if he has the strength within him. Have you seen it, Aragorn? The White City? Chicago? <laughs> oh no, not that one. Minas Tirith. And as a forever Chicagoan, I honestly never, ever heard Chicago called the White City until Eric Larson's book, Devil in the White City. Anyway. Well, apparently they do a whole song and dance number when you come home to the gates of Minas Tirith. I'm thinking something in between a pro wrestling introduction and a Bollywood dance number. Anywho, Boromir tells us one day he and Aragorn will go to the Tower of the Guard together, which, LOL, LMAO, they won't. Ah. But we will leave you there for the day. Have you ever seen his Aragorn? White Tower of Echthalion. Glimmering like a spike of pearl and silver. Its banners caught high in the morning breeze. Have you ever been called home by the clear ringing of silver trumpets? I have seen the White City. Long ago. One day, our paths will lead us there. Our guard shall take up the call. The lords of Gondor have returned. So this is the first of our two episodes in Lothlorien, which we will break down in full as it is our want. There's a fair amount of talk about its history, especially leading into Galadriel, but I just want to focus first on how it's presented to us at this point in the story. We are confronted with a tug of war, the fellowship in conflict with itself. Aragorn led the fellowship here in haste, He viewed it as the safest haven near where they came out of the Misty Mountains. 
Seemingly, we should view the entry into Lothlorien as a relief, as a return to safety until the tumult, after the tumult of Moria. But the minute we step into these woods, we become altogether unsettled. Gimli ominously drones on about an elf sorceress, while Frodo starts to get telepathic bombardment from someone who can only be said witch. And these aren't messages with positive vibes. Indeed, they too seem ominous. These are the footsteps of doom, and you bring great evil here. Yeah, this is insanely funny to me um, for a variety of reasons, but because it's actually um, weirdly kind of true to like the book in terms of um, the way it uses humor and uh, exposition. Um, and uh, one of the things that Tolkien does really, really well throughout the writing the books is he does this thing called register switching, um, where he, for example, will write something in this kind of high and lofty prose and then immediately switch to something that's a bit more common in vernacular. Um, and one of the examples that I have here, um, and if you heard me in the background, just like frantically uh, flipping through my book, that's why. Um, but at the start of Return of the King, um, there's this brilliant interaction where uh, Gandalf says, Sleep again and do not be afraid, for you are not going like Frodo to Mordor, but to Minas Tirith, and there you will be as safe as you can be anywhere in these days. If Gondor falls, or the ring is taken, then the Shire will be no refuge. Does that not bring you comfort? And Pippin in return, without missing a beat, says, it does not. And it's that sort of like going between and kind of recognizing the the almost like insufficiency insufficiency of like the higher register of tone to like properly um deal with like the the full kind of uh like like breadth and depth of, of like human quote-unquote human experience and that i think they get really well there and i realize that's like such a weird and batshit thing to get out of uh, what is obviously just like a really quick and easy joke but it does make me laugh because it is like so tonally spot on for what the lord of the rings is generally um and i i just adore it i think it's a great moment and then the company immediately walks into pointed arrows, encircled and ensnared by the elves of Lorien. Doesn't seem so reassuring to me, especially in the follow-up scene where Bormir seems about to crack in the presence of Celeborn and Galadriel. From the books, I recall a line, There is in her and in this land no evil, unless a man bring it hither himself. Lothlorien is not an evil place. In the end, it ends up being a kindly one, but that doesn't prevent us from bringing our own evil into it. In a way, this reminds me of the cave from Empire Strikes Back. Your weapons, you will not need them, says Yoda, but Luke disregards this advice. The cave itself may be strong with the dark side, but Luke himself brought evil into it on his own. Right. This is incredible. And I'm so, 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 so delighted that you bring up the Empire um, comparison here, because I think you were totally spot on about what they are doing. But I want to point out here, um, and to sound like a leadership seminar, um, I want to point out here the difference in how uh, you know, Galadriel and co, uh, and Legolas and basically all of the elves go about talking about Lothlorien, um, with how Yoda talks about going into the forest cave thing where, uh, Luke fights Vader-ish, that's actually him, loves some, uh, Freud. Um, one of the things that's really key for me here is that when Yoda is talking to Luke, um, and I do not ever want to give the impression that I think Yoda is a particularly good teacher or a leader. He's not. He's bad. He's really bad. Uh, everything is Yoda's fault. Uh, horrible little gremlin. Um, that disclaimer out of the way. When he's talking to Luke about going into this cave, um, he is being very careful to not place any potential blame at Luke's feet. Um, he's saying, you won't need the things that you are carrying with you when you go in there, um, as in like the physical things, but it's, it's framed in, in, in kind of like a general sort of 
nobody would really need it. You, you have enough that's within you. This is a bit of advice, but it's not like a moral judgment on who you are. When uh, literally everybody talks about uh, Lothlorien, it is part and parcel of a wider moral judgment of the person who's going in. Um, and I think this 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 fa- this line that you pull, which is totally a brilliant line to pull, which is there is in her in this land no evil, yada yada yada, and it's also mirrored later in Two Towers by um, Sam, who says, uh, "Sorry, I can't actually find the page of the book, but but Sam says something along the lines of like, there's nothing wrong with Lothorian except for the peril that men bring in themselves." Um, and and when he's saying this, and and when Aragorn is talking about there is no evil in this land, um, they are imparting a moral judgment on anybody who might feel a little icky about being in Lothorian, um, and they're they're saying basically. If you feel fucked up here, it's because you yourself are fucked up. And that is a really stark contrast to how Yoda is talking to Luke. Luke is saying, you know, there, or Yoda is saying, there's something in there and you will have to deal with it. You will have to look inside yourself to deal with it. But you are not morally bad or morally, you know, beyond repair for going in there and seeing something fucked up. We've all got something fucked up, you know, within ourselves. Um, and I think that difference is really key because I also think that this kind of emphasis on if you feel fucked up in Lothlarien, um, it's because there's something ultimately wrong with you is a big part of why Boromir ultimately succumbs to the ring because he's been told since the, since the fellowship has had its genesis at the Council of Elrond that there's something inherently bad and wrong about him. And he's told there's something really bad about you. And we don't know what the ring is telling him, but I assume it's probably something along the lines of you are otherwise going to fail and all of your people are going to be killed and the death of Gondor and the, the death of the legacy of Numenor will fall at your feet specifically. Take the ring and let's go. And Aragorn and Legolas and Galadriel are all saying, you're a fucking asshole. You come in here and you don't give us, you know, you don't pay due deference to, to this, you know, uh, city in, in the trees. And, and that's not because it's a totally reasonable thing to feel slightly uncomfortable about um, immortal beings. Um, it's because you're a jackass. That's going to have a really significant impact on someone. Like necessarily that is going to be like a quite psychologically kind of traumatizing or at least unsettling thing. Not to like improper, improperly use trauma because who would do that? Um, but I think it is, it is something that's really worth pointing out as part of this like Boromir fall speed run. Um, and I think it speaks to kind of like the, the effective shittiness of Aragorn and Galadriel as people who need to deal with other people, aka leaders. No, that's really great. I, I have no thoughts to really add on to that, but now I'm trying to contextualize that with the Fellowship leaving Lothlorien and how Gimli, you know, and I know Gimli's not our focus for the points you just made, but just like, he's like, oh, this is like the greatest horror in the world having to leave Lothlorien, um, you know, and how devastating it is to not be in the presence of Galadriel and in Callus Galadon. So I don't have a real thought about that, but it's something that maybe we'll pick back up in the next couple token token book sections when the fellowship actually leaves uh, Lothlorien properly. I will end this little digression by just reminding everyone that, hey, The Empire Strikes Back may be the greatest piece of Hollywood cinema. Yes. Absolutely. Anyway, <laughs> I think this sort of introduction serves a couple of purposes. First, I think it really accentuates that the Fellowship is composed of different peoples with different bagginses, sorry, baggages from different parts of the world and how that functions as they venture into new territory. The elves are friendly with Legolas, one of their kin, as they are with Aragorn, elf friend. Gimli is treated more harshly and Boromir finds no quarter here in Lorien, and the hobbits really don't know much about it at all. 
I think this fits in well with one of the main thrusts of this pod, how Lord of the Rings is a story about stories. Here is an example where we see different people having different and possibly conflicting stories about Lothlorien and the Lady Galadriel. But two, I think it helps create the sense that not all elves are the same. Due to the economy of film and the breadth of this adaptation, unfortunately basically all the races and kingdoms become monoliths unto themselves. The elves are one way, the dwarves another, the men of Gondor, hobbits, etc. And again, as the baby-brained general audience moviegoer I am, I think that's fine. But in setting up Lothlorien as not Rivendell, we get a sense that different elven kingdoms may be governed differently, welcome outsiders differently, and provide varying levels of comfort. The last homely house in the West in Rivendell was inviting, lots of open spaces and warm colors. Everyone seems to have a smile on their face, the music is a little more major scaly, and the golden autumnal colors were welcoming. In contrast, Lothlorien seems cloistered, defensive, a tad more inward-focused. The trees are sentinels in and of themselves, creating a gated-off aura, and in those trees stand Lothlorien's border security, <laughs> keeping tabs on everyone coming in and out of the woods and checking passports accordingly. The fellowships are met by weapons pointed in their face, which sounds a lot like INS to me. Abolish how there. <laughs> Um, so I think there's like two kind of important layers here. Uh, so one, uh, the elves of Lothlorien are uh, farther from the west. They are farther from Valinor, and not just in like the moral sense that I laid out at the start, but also like geographically, they are farther from the west than the elves of Rivendell. And so I guess there's kind of this potential uh, for them being slightly less moral along Tolkien's weird and incredibly fucked up uh, moral hierarchy geography system coordinate plane, I guess. Um, and then there's also the fact that Gladriel, unlike Elrond, is uh, 100% elf, or well, I say 100% elf, she's not really, but it's okay. She's more elf than uh, than Elrond. I love doing re-science. science um, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but I guess in a sense, in, in terms of the moral hierarchy that Tolkien sets up, she's gone farther to fall than Elrond. Um, and, and so there is this like greater potential for things to be uh, slightly worse. Um, and that, that kind of framework in my mind um, you know, triggers for me the, the thought of uh, Colonel Kurtz. Um, and, and I think um, for me, thinking of fellowship in particular, and I guess Lord of the Rings in general, as, as kind of done in the vein of Heart of Darkness, um, it, it's kind of a helpful way of dealing with the the stakes and figuring out what what choices are being made and why um and i think you know the the further along we get in fellowship in particular the more fucked up things get um Lothlorien to me is kind of like that director's cut scene of Apocalypse Now with the USO guys and the the Playboy girl and um, when Martin Sheen's like get off his face on LSD and then they're in the trenches and that poor guy gets uh, like shot up while uh, Martin Sheen's tripping balls like Lothlorien has that same kind of like uh, general feel um, and I think you know even though uh, it does kind of have a marked difference from from what it is in the books and um, in terms of tone and, and aesthetics i think it is kind of effective in that way for for building this sense of like the hobbits man they are really out of their out of their domain here they are they are like up like you know down the danang river without a paddle oh god i am hooting and hollering at this reference to heart of darkness slash apocalypse now um I, I know it's kind of a not touchy subject, but it's definitely something that's been relitigated and discussed at end. But I do think it's a 
you know, core story component. I don't know if Tolkien is explicitly calling out to Heart of Darkness, but it's hard not to see the story of Frodo journeying to Mordor as a very similar tale, if nothing else. So, um, and I just like Apocalypse Now and Francis Ford Coppola. So and if you have not watched the the making of Apocalypse Now, I believe it's called Hearts of Darkness. Um, it might be the best movie about making a movie ever. And it probably is better than Apocalypse Now is itself. Um, so I definitely recommend you checking that out. It might be on HBO Max. After meeting Haldir, they are allowed entrance into Karis Galadon, and they ascend into the treetops that make up this elven city. These elves live high up in the trees, seemingly above the affairs of men and Middle-earth, though darkness seems to be closing in on this patch of forest from the outside. This perhaps tracks with the elves of Lothlorien themselves, who seem far more insular than the other elves we have met so far. They interact far less with the outside world, and many don't even speak Westron or the common tongue. I also want to call out the trope or the imagery that is uh, villages up in the trees or cities up in the trees. Um, There's quite a few of them in Star Wars, such as the Wookiees in Kashyyyk or the Ewoks of Endor. Um, We see it a little bit in The Legend of Zelda with the Kokiri Forest. Ursula Le Guin's uh, Word for World is Forest is also a story that it it, it has a city in the trees or something (laughs) like that. Um, And then there are apparently several other, usually in the young adult uh, fantasy genre, that have similar cities and trees. But after the whole Isabel Fall thing, I am very hesitant to name any young adult authors at this point uh, with worries of what they may, may have said in that whole fiasco. And I am going to go ahead and reference someone who is functionally uncancelable because he invented cancel culture. Um, and I also need to get like a like an audio version of that guy who's only seen Boss Baby tweet because I'm like, <laughs> guy who's only read The Inferno. Uh, this reeks <laughs> of The Inferno to me. But it does. Um, and that is because the start of The Inferno starts with uh, m- uh, midway through uh, the journey of our life. Uh, I found myself lost in a dark and twisted wood or something to that extent. Um, and I think that imagery of like the dark and twisted wood acting as the sort of and also notably the dark and twisting wood without the uh, the like wise sage to guide one along through it. Um, is basically what's going on here in Lothlorien. They are in this dark and twisted wood, and Frodo especially is going through identity crisis after identity crisis. Aragorn is going through a crisis. Uh, Boromir is going through a crisis. Uh, Legolas doesn't really have emotions, but I assume he's going through a crisis because he's like, oh god, these are the big guys. This is like the posh kids. I'm at Eaton now. Um, and Gimli's also obviously having an existential crisis. Um, Merry and Pippin, presumably drunk. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there is this kind of feeling that you, there's a close relationship between these kind of sylvan, um, environments, um, and the darkness and, and like the, the loss of like control. Um, not just because, you know, there, there is a, like an old Western European kind of medieval literary trope that, that says that, you know, the forests are the last bits of untouched land by the peasantry. They are the, the last kind of realm, um, of, of geography that, that hasn't been, uh, commanded or brought to heal by mankind um but also because they are like just literally a hard place to navigate like even if you take away like all of the kind of like moral and like um philosophical metaphysical whatever elements to it like try try walking around a forest in the dark it fucking sucks um and i and i think that i really like that they have this element here of playing up the darkness of Lothlorien, even if it is in in the books the golden wood and somewhere that gleams and glistens there is more of this element of like Yep, dark and twisted wood. We're in the old old world medieval tropes here. 
And as you alluded to, the color palette changes noticeably here, as it is mostly depicted in blues and other cool colors. Some of this is just time of day. Most of our Lothlorien scenes occur over one night, again speaking to the hurried pace of the film adaptation. There's a lot less lingering than in the books where I believe they spend weeks uh, in Lothlorien, whereas here it feels like an overnight stay. Yeah, it really is. Um, and I think this this change, this color palette change, is um, really interesting. And, and as I said, I, I basically think it works um, or, or is effective. Um, but I do want to point out that um, it is very different to the golden wood of the books because it's one of these instances where the filmmakers are basically content to deviate from like the canonical aesthetics, which makes the moments where they don't do that that much more interesting. Um, and to harken back to... a believe it was episode eight uh where we talked about like the issue of like race and and like uh racialized racialization in these films and particularly like the orcs and the decision to make certain things uh canonically uh, align with or align canonically with the aesthetics that are laid out in the book versus the the instances where they aren't um like caras galadon and like lothorian are uh in the films one of these places where the filmmakers are like fine we can totally change it and that's okay um, which I think then makes the other instances where they're like, oh, well, we have to keep these things for canonical reasons. Very interesting. There are shots of the Fellowship walking up spiraling staircases around giant trees. The upshot angle almost gives the impression that you are looking up into the night blue sky and seeing stars when in fact those lights are parts of the Alvish city. This helps tie it to the light of Arendil, the file Galadriel will give Frodo a bit later, which she refers to as their most precious star. Some of this may also be, just be practical. Lothlorien seems more driven by CGI and less practical sets than Rivendell, so the darker setup helps mask some of the CGI and other rough edges on the fringes of the screen. And Lothlorien is a location we see a lot less than Rivendell, so in terms of opportunity cost or production budget, this would kind of track to me. But ultimately, I think the blue coloring sets it up as both distinct from Rivendell and also seemingly cooler in that they are less welcoming to outsiders. I'm sure Emily has lots of thoughts on this, but this is how I make sense of the film choices. Yeah, so I think this is one of the interesting things where, again, like this um, kind of uh, flattening of the two different types of elves is... Um, interesting because Karas Galadon um, and Lothlorien more generally are uh, one of the really interesting instances where the the elves who didn't go to Valinor, who didn't answer the call of the Valar and go west, um, live side by side with the elves that did. Um, so you get this mixing of kind of the the high high elves, which are like Gladriel's people, the ones who went to uh, the went to west, and the 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 Sindar, the Sylvan elves who didn't. Um, and so. It is accurate, I would say accurate and good to point out that they are isolationists, but the like pro-elf kind of argument here, the pro-Gladrio, pro-Lothlorian argument here, is that really they aren't isolationists because they are mending this quite significant divide between uh, two sets of elves who made wildly different moral choices and um, have had um, wildly different uh, takes on one another and often quite like violently angry takes with one another because of those choices that they made. Um, it is kind of a bit like um, you get uh, 
It is a bit like, you know, when you get universities, like especially universities in the US where they report on like diversity numbers and they're like, oh, it, it, we don't lack diversity. We have Italians and French here. Um, and that is basically what like Galadriel and Mothlorien is doing. Like we have the good elves and we have the slightly less good elves. Um, and so I think like there there is this kind of like... Um, <sighs> There is this flattening of what's going on, um, and part and parcel of that flattening is making them all seem kind of equally spooky and like equally uh, distinct to the nicer, friendlier, uh, more dynamic elves of Rivendell. Which also, I would say, puts uh, Legolas in a really interesting position because these are effectively his people, but uh, posher, but nicer. Um, and um, I say nicer, Jesus Christ, uh, like, like posher, richer people. Um, and um, and so when he's coming through this, and, and as you can see in the kind of uh, like aesthetic difference between him and how he's costumed and Gladriel and how she's costumed, which is something we're going to get into slightly later, um, there is this sense of like distinction. But because it's not really mapped out in any other way, um, you, you like don't really know how, like the, the film itself doesn't give you a vocabulary to articulate it, um, which is interesting. Um, but I think it also kind of contributes to the sense of like, there is something beyond in the shadows um, that we can't really, we can't really see and we can't really deal with. Um, and, and the darkness and the kind of um, vague hints at other words, like the, the light of Yorindo, um, is, is something that kind of compounds on this, which is like, there's something just out, out of frame. I have friends out of frame. Uh, they're laughing alongside at my jokes, um, but we can't really fully see them right now. Um, and so I do think it is basically effective in, in that way. Um, but I also think there's an element um, that I find interesting in the, the blue color versus the, the Auron's uh, autumnal colors, um, which is that there is an age element here. Um, and maybe this is just like my specific brand of like brain damage, but I see like things that are blue toned um, and I automatically go, these things are much older. I don't know why, I guess like all history films, like like biopic films or whatever, historical fiction, historical drama, whatever, had that horrible blue filter on them for a while. And now my brain is like, yes, this is the color of history. This is the visco filter of history. Um, but there is a sense of like, they are in the winter of their lives. They're, they're, they're done for. And at least with Elrond and Arwen, there might be hope. Um, and for Gladriel, there's just, they are like, she is fully shit out of luck. Yeah. Speaking of my brain poisoning, when you said the blue filter, I just assumed you meant the rise of Skywalker. So, <laughs> oh no. Um, Let's kick open that Pandora's box. <laughs> Let's not. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll talk about Lothlorien's history and its naming a little bit here. The name Lothlorien means dream flower <laughs> from the Cinderin Loth for flower and Noldoran uh, Lorien for dream and also called the golden wood in Westron or I'll just let you do this part. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Lorlin Doranan. Um, and, uh, that is a reference to Lorlin, the, the golden tree. Uh, and, uh, Doranan is like a realm of, I think, uh, sorry, I actually should have uh, double checked on that. Um, but the, the reason why I'm interested in this, this, uh, term Lorlin Doranan is because it is not often used. Um, it is, sorry, to preface, that is the Quanya name for it, um, and uh, is not often used in the books. Um, and so the instances when it is used um, are really, really interesting and uh, like good for um, a certain level of like uh, like articulating a wider theme of the book. Um, Laurel and Doranen is used by two characters in the books, um, neither of whom are elves, um, and neither of whom speak Quanya as their native tongue. Um, they are Treebeard and Faramir. Um, and when they use Laurel and Doranen, 
and they're using it to evoke like a sense of ancientry and connection to a lost world. So even though in Lothorian, the, the like lingua franca is Sindarin, which is to like, or at least to Faramir, kind of this lower middling tier language. And um, even though that's what they speak in Lothorian, um, there is a, an in-universe aura of ancientry and, and like a, a disconnect almost from like the pragmatics and the realities of the everyday world that to properly evoke or invoke um, the, the feelings that go hand in hand with what Lothorian is, they have to reach back to this Latinate language to fully grasp what the area is. Um, and, and, you know, we'll get into this when, when we, when we meet Treebeard and later when we meet uh, Bimbo Faramir, but um, there is this also connection that like, um, you know, Treebeard is a tree herder and Faramir is someone who comes wa walking out of the woods and is in some ways a guardian of the woods and Lothlorien is this fortress in the woods. Um, and there is this sense of like the forests um, having been kind of this um, effective guardian of uh, this like silent and maybe perhaps like underappreciated guardian of the things that are good and, and just and right in the world. Um, and even if they have gone forgotten, for example, um, for Tolkien, um, who fought in World War One, um, where there was immense damage done to the the forests of Western Europe, like the the forest of the Ardan, uh, is is you know kind of the the, the big one that I always think of. Um, this destruction of forests really is the destruction goes would have gone symbolically hand in hand with the destruction of all that was good and worth fighting for, um, and to then do the inverse or reverse or converse, I can't remember what it is of that. Uh, by having those uh, those those forests there and 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 harkening back to a time when those forests were good and protected and cared for, um, you are harkening back then to a time when there was like goodness in the world and a lot to get out of a single name there, uh, but but that is basically it. Uh, Laurel and Doran and and the the Golden Tree, the land of the Golden Tree. Oh no, that's great. Um, I have my own little head cannon here that Treebeard uses Laurel and Doranin just because it's like the oldest possible word for it. Um, <laughs> so it's the only one he would have learned. And Faramir basically uses it to be a pretentious, stuck up asshole about yes, knowing. Correct. Like, yes, I know this word, and you guys are going to know that I know this word. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, um, no, that's that's not uh, that that is canon. I will like anybody who says that's not canon. I will fight them on. You are spot on correct there. <laughs> <laughs> The woods here were first inhabited by the elves of Nandor, who I hear make a great peri-peri chicken. <laughs> but we mostly care about the arrival of Galadriel and Celeborn in the Second Age, crossing the Misty Mountains from west to east to dwell here. The last Sindarin king of Lorien, Amroth, would eventually leave in search of Nimrodel, you know, token token book section, beware, and rule would fall to Celeborn and Galadriel. Lothlorien would endure attacks from Dol Guldur during the War of the Ring, Dolgodor being the haunted fortress in Mirkwood where Sauron posed as the necromancer before returning to Mordor. And I guess just a quick bit of elvish architecture here. These platforms up in the trees are called flats or talon, and they're platforms built in the in the great Melorn trees of Lorien, giant platforms on which they lived. And when the Fellowship meets Galadriel and Celeborn, you can see the flat they are on is ordained with leaves. Now I want to talk about Haldir, played by Craig Parker. Haldir has a fairly minor presence in the movies, and to be honest, the books too, maybe even less of a presence, though he does have an expanded role in the film, namely in The Two Towers, which we'll talk about when we get there. But here he is basically the guard at the gate, he intercepts our company and proceeds to take them to Galadriel. 
Haldir is one of the few elves of Lorien that is well-traveled outside its borders, and because of that, he is one of the few who speaks the common tongue. Um, in the books, he does have two brothers, which are not explicitly shown in the films, who do not speak Westron. Yeah, so he's really funny to me because he's he has like an insane amount of presence for someone who's like playing such a nothing character and i mean you, like if you try to describe Haldir, you, you can't really do it more than like his job description on the fact that he uh, gets murked in uh, astonishingly cool fashion at helm's deep oh, spoilers um but like he really is just kind of the elf that isn't legolas or elrond or gladriel um, and at one point he is like in helm's deep when he comes to helm's deep he's like uh lord elrond sent us and i'm like dude you don't work for elrond like you work for gladriel that is like a pretty clear thing those are separate kingdoms that's like the fucking like french foreign legion showing up and being like george bush sent us like what are you talking about anyways not to compare elrond to george bush my brain just went there um, <laughs> <laughs> it is what it is <laughs> um but you know he is this kind of like every man for for the elves and i and i do think it works um and he also has like a huge fan following online he's almost inescapable online for for better or for worse um and i i think i suspect part of this is because he's literally just like everything because he is uh, not sounding like a dick but because he is nothing he is also everything um and so he can be this like a swiss army knight like elf character no that's great i'm just still tickled by how you relate these things to war criminals <laughs> so easily oh uh, and in our boromir episode when you were talking about someone associated with another country you jumped to hitler <laughs> and now Elrond is george w bush <laughs> oh god <laughs> just fantastic oh, stuff from you boy. yeah let's wait right. to see who i compare to pol pot <laughs> <laughs> oh theoden be on watch um <laughs> So now um, we'll begin with the meat of this and possibly the next episode as well, talking about Galadriel, as played by Kate Blanchett, the Lady of the Wood herself. And, you know, Kate Blanchett is infinitely charming and hot. <laughs> um, I'll hand it off to Emily because she's probably a little more knowledgeable about her name and history, though I really, really do feel bad about making Emily do all this because I can hear the shrieking inside her brain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Gladriel, uh, what, uh, what a lady, uh, what a character. Um, so Gladriel was... Uh, I was going to say buried, was born in the uh, city of Tyrion in Amman. And I, I'm gonna, I was going to like try and give the year of her birth, which is the year of the trees, 1362, but I really don't want to get into the, the year of the trees. So let's just like put this as she's real old. Um, she came across, as we talked about in the intro, with uh, like Fanor and his lot, well actually more accurately, Fingolfin er, and Finarfin and his lot through uh, the Helcaraxa. She is the daughter of Finarfin, which really shouldn't mean a huge amount to you, um, except that he is, uh, well, to carry on the George Bush uh, chat, he was like almost going to be like the Jeb Bush of the family of Finway, and then kind of fell ass backwards into being king of the High Elves, uh, just because he was like 16th in line to the throne, and literally all 16 uh, between uh, him and, and the throne bar one uh, got uh, killed. Uh, and the one who wasn't killed gave up his crown because he got his ass thrown in prison. Um, so uh, Gladriel is like effectively a, like a high princess, I guess, of the Noldor. Um, she's 
portrayed as being this kind of, in the Silmarillion at least, she's portrayed as being kind of this like um, ethereal even to the other elves. Like she is a, a massive hippie in a lot of ways. She's like a real new ager. Um, and also being kind of uh, like quietly arrogant and quietly, uh, um, quietly a colonizer, I guess, really. Um, one of the things that um, is worth pointing out about her uh, various names. So like Galadriel means she's like crowned by light, I think it is, which is of course a reference to her hair. Um, but she also has a couple different uh, fun, exciting names. So she's got like um, Artanis, uh, which is Quenya, which means like um, Arta, Arta is a noble, like noble woman. Uh, and this is the, the ending that means uh, lady. Um, and then she's also got... Um, one of the other <laughs> really interesting ones is um, Galadriel, which is part of, which is the name that we, we speak to her by. Uh, it could also be translated as Man Maiden. Um, and that is a, a fun little one um, alongside the, the secondary Quenya name Narwin, um, because it, it, it deals with this element of uh, Gladriel as a bit of a gender bender um, in, uh, in, in Elvish culture. Um, not just because um, she has she is depicted in like Tolkien's very narrow gender binary as taking up some of the more like quote unquote masculine traits, but also because she effectively rules as a king um, in Eregian um, and, and later Lothorian. And goes to Middle Earth via via the Helcaraxa and Beleriand with the intention of ruling as a king, um, and and she really doesn't ever uh, hide this fact that she is interested in in the, this element of power and this element of shaping history in in her own image, and that is something that you don't really see from a huge amount of the women characters in in the Lord of the Rings. Um, she marries. Um, <laughs> Kelleborn, um, we'll get to his name later, uh, Kelleborn, um, and uh, they have a really interesting um, marriage in that it's not necessarily clear if it's like a marriage of convenience or a marriage of love and whether or not that even matters, um, but they rule over Regan and Lothlorien together. Um, she uh, is the bearer of one of the rings, which we will also get to later, um, and um, she passes and goes west uh, after Frodo, uh, what, oh my God, what's the word? Uh, test, like test her with the ring, offers her the ring. Uh, and she says, no, thank you. Uh, time to, time to end my exile from, uh, Valinor and go home. Um, she, she passes West and, and leaves Caliborn in charge of Lothlorien. Um, but on the whole, um, if you have any sort of interest in, in like, well, well-written uh, women characters. I, I do recommend um, checking out pretty much anything um, that has um, Galadriel um, in it. You know, there's the Silmarillion, there's Lord of the Rings, there's also the Unfinished Tales, which is the tale of Celeborn and Galadriel. Um, she is really one of these fantastic women characters, um, and I will make the controversial claim that she's a fantastic woman character because she's treated as a human being first, and the fact of her gender is kind of uh, secondary um, and not necessarily overplayed, just for the sake of the fact of saying, oh, look, we have woman representation. But anyways, uh, without kicking the hornet's nest too much, that is in a nutshell her her history. No, I appreciate that. I'm also going to take that as tacit preemptive endorsement of the new Amazon show. So she's going to be in it. So I'm holding you to this now. Rings of power. Good, says Emily on February 9th, 2022. <laughs> 
Um, and I do appreciate Emily going over that because when I was getting into her entomology of Galadriel and the man-made and stuff, I'm like, this is just going to be me copying and pasting from other people's sources. I have no way to really wrap my head around that. So thank you, Emily. I, I'll take back your endorsement of the show based on uh, that very insightful. <laughs> yes. uh, the Lady Galadriel gets teased to us long before we meet her properly. In fact, we passively meet her in the prologue, though perhaps if you don't recognize Kate Blanchett's voice, you wouldn't know that it was her talking. Hopefully when that voice pops up again in these scenes, you can put it together. Our second meeting with Galadriel could also be considered passive. We only hear her in Frodo's head while glimpsing her eyes, which we will circle back to in our production value segment. But then we come to the fellowship being presented to the Lord and Lady of the Wood, and we get to see how the fellowship reacts to her presence and vice versa. One of the most telling is Aragorn's reaction. He touches his hand to his forehead, which immediately gives me religious vibes. It's like Catholics uh, touching their forehead, doing the cross or something. I don't know. I'm not Catholic. <laughs> but as a raised Hindu, it reminds me of the application of Sindor, a red-orange powder that Hindus will apply to their foreheads for religious ceremonies. It provides Galadriel a sense of divinity, as if she were some god or angel walking this earth, which tracks with Galadriel being one of the most powerful elves around, in part due to her having the ring of adamant Nenya. The way she descends down to our fellowship exacerbates this, like someone stepping down from heaven to be on level with us mere mortals. Merry and Pippin are just utterly dumbstruck by Galadriel, by her beauty, by the etherealness of her being. Sam and Frodo too are too to varying degrees, especially when she looks at Sam and says, hope remains while the company is true. Sean Astin has a very subtle reaction to that line, but you can feel him stealing up inside as if his confidence was boosted by those words. Yes. Okay. Yes. So this is really interesting because I do want to talk about uh, the things that Gladiel says and, and the, the, the very obvious omission um, for who we hear, which is Boromir. We don't hear um, what she says to Boromir. And this is actually something that gets played play in the books where, you know, Faramir is like, Boromir, oh, Boromir, what did she say to you? The lady that dies not or something like that. I don't know that I've transcribed that right. But like what Galadriel actually says to Boromir is a big question mark. And I think it is pretty much inarguable that whatever she says to him is part of this wider downfall of of Boromir um, and it contributes in some way. Um, And I think this is my point where I'm going to get in here and I'm going to say that Tolkien's politics are absolutely dog shit and it is never clearer than it it is in in this moment. Um, And Galadriel rules like a king or like a queen, whichever like terminology, like she rules like a monarch, and so does Aragorn. And they treat people like they are monarchs, which they are. They are, they are you know, whether rightly or wrongly through colonial rule, whatever, they are monarchs. And there is a problem with how monarchs treat people. And there is a problem with that expectation of deference because emotionally it does not fulfill the things that we as human beings need. And, and you know, there's a there's a brilliant book by, I'm going to say Mark Block and then I'm going to get this wrong just after talking this up, but, but it deals with the royal touch. Um, and it's this phenomenon throughout history, you know, going straight up to Diana, Princess Diana in the 1980s and, and the AIDS crisis. But this, this belief... Um, that, that, that is part and parcel of the divine right of kings, that there is a healing touch to the monarch. And, and this is also something that obviously gets played in here in, in Lord of the Rings through through Aragorn and his ability to heal. But there's a sense um, in, in a kind of mystical European way um, that that the monarchs have a, a, a healing touch. Um, and this 
this book and this this movie wants to well to a lesser extent these movies want to sell that because that is a that is an integral part of um, Western European royalism. But this scene in particular and Boromir's downfall proves that it is an inadequate form of leadership. And just the notion that being touched by a king is enough to heal your ills is not true. And it is never more true than when we look at Boromir and the crisis that being in Lothorian um, you know, conjures in him. Um, and, and if Galadriel had, um, you know, had a real conversation instead of standing up on her, her pedestal and, you know, you know, uh, orating down to, to the peasants and the pros below, if Aragorn had ever stopped to have an actually emotionally fulfilling conversation with Boromir instead of fussing and worrying about, you know, his, you know, what fucking size his crown was going to be when he got there or, you know, which of his 10 different royal rings he was going to wear at his coronation, then maybe Boromir could have been saved. Now, I know there is the, the correct and, and accurate argument that Boromir couldn't have been saved narratively because then you couldn't have had the Lord of the Rings as, as, as stories or it wouldn't have been as effective. But in universe, this rule of the monarchy and this, this kind of distance and expectation of deference brings ongoing harm to people and it is really really vividly shown here and and and, you know i'm not expecting everybody to like instantly become a republican after this but i do want to bring this up because i think this is one of these moments where this this royalist leadership style just doesn't work and think about how drastically the 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 narrative could have been changed the story could have been changed if they weren't just acting like you know like like kings and queens The change we see in Gimli as caused by Galadriel gets more attention in the extended editions, but here we see him having all his preconceptions of the Lady of the Wood dissolve in front of his eyes, lost in her beauty and her virtue. Uh, sign up for the Patreon and we can talk a little bit more about the hair scene that'll happen in the next episode that we talk about. But I did want to get into this quote uh, from when Gimli met Galadriel in the books. And the dwarf hearing the names given in his own ancient tongue, looked up and met her eyes, and it seemed to him that he looked suddenly into the heart of an enemy and saw their love and understanding. Wonder came into his face, and then he smiled in answer. Very cute, Gimli. (laughs) This isn't just a one-way street of reaction. We see Galadriel basically surmise what happened to Gandalf based on his absence and stray looks from Aragorn and Legolas, although the latter explicitly states what happened in the extended edition. I choose to ignore it. (laughs) She seems wise and discerning, appropriate for the air they try to create around this character. Yeah, and this is super interesting. And and what you are about to hear are the ramblings of a mad woman trying desperately to come up with a unified theory of the film and books. Um, But... Um, in the books, it's Galadriel who really doesn't say a huge amount in this scene. She she's the one who says like, "Tell me where is Gandalf? For I much desire to speak with him." But 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 anyways, um, mm-hmm. and um, she fills in some of the gaps around Gandalf. But 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 for for the most part, it is Celeborn who's really keeping the the momentum of the scene going. And the fact that they changed this is interesting to me because it's a change to what the fundamental purpose of the theme of storytelling is in the films and in the books. And I want to get it out here that I'm not saying that one is better or worse than the other, but it is a fundamental change. And I think it is worth pointing out. Um, In the books, when Galadriel is asking her one question about Gandalf, it's played like she knows a lot more than she's letting on. And she's wanting to have the other folks tell her the story in their own words, because their interpretation of events will be more revealing to her than the actual facts of the story. 
Um, now I should humble brag here and say that I just finished doing a dissertation on, um, well, not just using oral history as like an investigative method, but um, also like examining and interrogating oral history itself, like asking the question of like, why do we use oral history? How do historians change history when we record it via oral history? And like, um, what, what fundamentally changes between having something um, you know, committed to history via like paraphernalia, like like objects and items and 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 writings, versus having it committed to history via interviews and people telling their own story in their own words. So this change is like especially interesting to me. But as part of this like desperation to have like a unified theory of storytelling, I think the change that happens here comes down to this: the movies are interested in the act and art of telling stories, and they posit that there is a possibility of a singular truth. They are interested in the art of uncovering that truth. So Galadriel tells us a whole bunch of things in the prologue. And the films then set around to proving that what Galadriel said is effectively true. And they prove it by showing him. And that is the, that is the storytelling for them. Is, is this act of, act of showing this thing that has been true and, and, and proving that it is true. And there is a truth to the story that they are telling and somewhere underneath every single story that comes into play in the, in, in, in the Lord of the Rings, there is something that is true. There's a kernel of truth. There is, there is, you know, to actually, um, man, uh, the last duel, Ridley Scott's last duel, which just got snubbed with Oscar noms and um, does this brilliantly because it's broken up into three sections and it's like, you know, uh, the, the first guy's story, second guy's story, and then Jodie Comer's story. And beneath that, the subhead on that is the truth. Um, oh no, what it is, is the truth as told by blank, the truth as told by blank, and then the truth as told by Jodie Comer, who isn't Jodie Comer, and then the as told by Jodie Comer bit fades out and it's just left with the truth. And that is a really fascinating way of looking at storytelling in film. And I think something that, that kind of plays into this here, which is like, is there is there ultimately a, a final truth? Um, the books, by contrast, believe that there are many possible truths and what is interesting and important about truth and storytelling is the interplay between those possible truths. Tolkien isn't interested in a single unquestionable truth, except for, of course, like the truth of the word of God or whatever. He's interested in how different stories are told and what changes are made based on the action of those stories. So it is significant that the Lord of the Rings isn't told to us as though it is a story that happened as exact, exactly as said. There is this layer of separation through the the book of the red book of the west march and through it having been trans transcribed and then late, later translated by tolkien that says that these things could have happened but we can't be 100 percent sure that they happened like this and we can't know for certain and um, and the films because they have this this added kind of almost burden i guess of showing things on 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 screen showing things to us visually they have to contend with this this potentiality, I guess, of like a universal truth of an objective truth. And I think this for me, this this change from like letting Gladriel kind of sniff around the edges and suss out various interpretations to Gladriel just wanting the actual facts um, is one of the really cool like doorways into that discussion. No, I think that's great. And we're about a minute or an hour 13 in here and I can do my first uh, Game of Thrones mention because that's something I also find pretty much an issue with trying to um, unify Game of Thrones and the books it's based on. And I think Lord of the Rings broadly is just does it better, the unification and also just the visual adaptation was better just by itself. But it is 
the books of A Song of Ice and Fire are written through characters' point of view. It's not unlike The Last Duel, which that movie rips, by the way. Um, but it's just like, here, this is this chapter is from the point of view of Tyrion Lannister. Then here's one from Darna- Daenerys Targaryen. Here's one from Jaime Lannister. Here's one from Jon Snow. And then it's kind of up to the reader to figure out what is the actual events that happened. And then, like, why are the people's point of views informing the narrative the way they do or the themes or whatnot? Whereas once you kind of depict it visually, the camera is usually viewed as a reliable narrator in cinema. It certainly is in Lord of the Rings and tends to be for most blockbusters or mass audience kind of movie making. Um, So there is that sort of interpretation that's lost. And, you know, I think about there's like that Nietzsche quote that I'll probably butcher here that's like facts don't matter, only interpretations. Um, And that seems to be where that kind of unreliable narrator or the multiple point of views or multiple tellings of the same story and then trying to come up with the synthesis of that comes into play. The importance of Gandalf's absence cannot be overstated, both within the Fellowship and without. We've seen our company members react and continue to grieve for Gandalf, and now as news reaches other parts of Middle-earth, we see its effect on others. Not to buy into Galadriel's own hagiography, but her and Celeborn are among the wisest and most powerful beings in Middle-earth. To see them dismayed at Gandalf falling into shadow speaks volumes. Going back to our last episode, we talked about how our point of view on Gandalf has generally been from the Hobbit's eyes. He's a grandfather, generally kindly being, who can be stern and forceful when needed. We glimpsed his power in Moria, and now we are seeing the sort of stock others put in Gandalf as one of the great beings of Middle-earth. Gandalf was the first to volunteer himself to accompany Frodo Baggins to Mordor, and was essentially the guide and team leader for the Fellowship. The big players of Middle-earth, the Elrons and Galadriels, surely felt better knowing that he was the beacon lighting the way. At least in the books, we'd already been on the Mithrandir hype train for this saga known as the Lord of the Rings. Many years Gandalf has labored, several characters will say, but this war for the ring will be his greatest feat yet. So to have that snatched away so suddenly, as unceremonious as it was, it hurts. It hurt our characters are still lamenting in the confines of Lothlorien. Without him, the fate of the Fellowship is shaky, as Galadriel pretty much tells them. They don't have their magical wizard to conjure up solutions anymore. It will now fall to Aragorn's authority, the cunning of Legolas, the bravery of Samwise Gamgee, and the perseverance of the Ringbearer to see it through. Yeah, and so one of the things I want to pick up on here is uh, um, we we talked many episodes ago, many, many moons ago, about... um, romanticism and and Tolkien and and his relationship to the romantic movement. Um, And one of the key elements of the romantic movement, and and indeed kind of like a a huge variety of the the, uh, social, artistic and like political movements that take hold of Europe, uh, basically around the 18th century onwards, uh, like namely the Enlightenment and uh, the reaction to the Enlightenment that is romanticism, is this... um, notion of like and i'm so sorry to like all of the people who who write so eloquently on this but like basically throwback thursday to like the classical world and um, and the romantics really take up um the the this notion of the classical world as like something that should be looked at um aesthetically as well as politically but primarily aesthetically for like the goodness and kind of innocence and um justice that it had as part and parcel of like its political program because you know i guess greece and rome were all this unified polity whatever and um, gandalf in a lot of ways functions as this classical 
figure for us um, in in the books. He is the he is the relationship, the the embodiment of the relationship between um, not just old and new, but the old world and the new world. And to lose Gandalf is in a, in a way, in a sense, to lose contact with the um, uh, like the classical world, the you know antiquity, and and all of the things, the good things that go hand in hand with that. And and it is of course that important that Gandalf does come back. Um, and it is this you know metaphorical um, reinterpretation of of the of antiquity and its use. Um, but I think Tolkien is really kind of going heavy here on on the importance of um, having this history, the the psychological trauma of losing access to that history, and then the kind of ongoing catharsis of once again having access to it again. And and here right now we're in this like ongoing trauma of having lost our our um, our window to the past. I guess. Uh, to steal from uh, various other Tolkien books. And there is language in the extended edition cut that alludes to all may not be as it seems with Gandalf, whose machinations exceed the understanding of mortal minds, which kind of goes back to our earlier discussion of maybe he's just too big for us to wrap our heads around. But we will save that for unlocked Patreon episodes, which you can sign up for at patreon.com slash bomb. I want to chat a little bit now about Boromir and Aragorn, which we went over in the recap. We see the two men of our company, bound by this fellowship and by ties to the kingdoms of men, react very differently in the presence of Galadriel. For Aragorn, this is as safe a place as can be had in these dark times. But Boromir finds no peace here, and will feel better when the woods are behind him. Well, he thinks that, but death awaits not far downriver. Mostly, I just think this is superb acting by Sean Bean, who himself has to balance the character on the edge of a knife. He is teetering on hopelessness. Like I said in the recap, he talks to Aragorn about his father's rule failing, but I wonder if this is the first time Boromir is admitting the truth to himself. When you're holding the river and fighting battle after battle, then making haste to Rivendell on horse and foot, maybe you aren't able to find a moment to think on things. But Boromir is not entirely without hope. Hell, he gets almost downright giddy at the opportunity of escorting Aragorn into Minas Tirith. Them being welcomed home together by the Tower of the Guard, the trumpets heralding the sons of Gondor brings a tear-filled smile to Bean's face. Aragorn is a bit unsure about all of this, but the notable change in Boromir is outstanding, pulling himself up from his own despair. Which, I don't know, reminds me a little bit of the last act in this film. After Frodo esca escapes his attempt to steal the ring, Boromir very much could have wallowed or run off or did a hundred million things to hide his shame about what just happened. Instead, he stands himself up and comes to the aid of Merry and Pippin and is honest with Aragorn in his dying breath. Okay, I'm really excited because I think we can actually have like a proper fight here, um, and I think it, we need to have uh, we need to contract out Howard Shore to write a fight theme for us uh, that we can play whenever we have fights in the future. But I think one of the things that I really want to do here is I want to talk about hope, the elves, and the men in these films, um, and and the movies do two things: they conflate Aragorn and and hope, and they conflate. Uh, moral goodness with support of Aragorn and hope. I should note that um, support of Aragorn is also positioned as like a pole pol of moral goodness in the books. So that at least is not new necessarily. Um, but Boromir's worry about being in Lothlorien and like his comorbid lack of proper deference to the elves and all that they've created is played as part of his larger downfall. 
even though he does, you are like absolutely spot on, get that nice moment talking about the horns and the Citadel Guard, yada, yada, yada. This isn't the, the moment in the movie that really starts to posit that there will be no happily ever after for Boromir. So the Boromir problem. And there's a brilliant thread on Twitter that I will link to by C.G. Logsdon. And, and they're a, an incredible Tolkien scholar and also a shameless Gondor partisan, which is excellent behavior as far as I'm concerned. Um, but they make the case that Boromir is essentially hopeless in the film. He does have his moments of hope, but on the whole, the cardinal sin of Boromir is that he is hopeless. Whereas in the books, his cardinal sin is that he valorizes and glorifies war too much. And Boromir's hopelessness in the films gets expanded throughout the films into an overall hopelessness in Gondor, far surpassing the actual hopelessness we see in the books, and turns it essentially into Boromir's chief moral failing. But the books recognize that hopelessness is a perfectly reasonable response to terrible circumstances. And I think this is basically because J.R.R. Tolkien went through World War I and then wrote Lord of the Rings in World War II. Being hope was both not a common thing, but also a worryingly unrealistic thing. Peter Jackson obviously was not raised in those same circumstances. So decoupling hope from morality is a fairly important thing for Tolkien. In place of hope, he has duty. Faramir, for example, is hopeless, but he holds himself to his duty to the legacy of Numenor. Boromir in the books is hopeless, but he holds himself to his duty to Gondor. At Mount Doom, Sam is hopeless, but he holds himself to his duty to Frodo. Denethor's sin in the books is not his hopelessness, but rather the failure of his duty. Yes, you can argue that his duty fails because he's hopeless, but he's actually markedly less hopeless than his son Faramir who is not only fucked off about the war, but is also mad about what Gondor is outside of the war, implying that winning the war won't just fix everything for him, and that melancholy will continue. And Faramir is really another excellent example of this breach between morality and hopelessness in the books that I'm, that I'm talking about. Faramir in the book straight up says, What hope have we? It is long since we have had any hope. The sword of Elendil, if it returns indeed, may rekindle it, but I do not think that it will do more than put off the evil day unless other hope unlooked for, for also comes from elves or men. For the enemy increases and we decrease. We are a failing people, a springless autumn. Which is pretty much the single most hopeless thing anyone in the book says, save Frodo and Sam at Mount Doom and Eowyn trying to get herself killed. But literally seconds after pronouncing their hope, this hopelessness, Faramir then goes on to deliver a speech that reflects the moral core of the books, so it's pretty clear that Tolkien doesn't think that hope has anything to do with moral goodness. And this is also interesting because skepticism of the elves really isn't ever treated as such a clear-cut moral issue in the books. Faramir, who Tolkien treats as his voice of moral clarity par excellence, actually expresses his own skepticism towards the elves, including directly citing Lothlorien as a place where a whole bunch of freaks and murderers live. But there's no sense in that scene in the books that this is part of some moral failing of his. In reality, it's just part of a larger argument that this death of communication and openness is really bad for everybody. So it is really interesting to me that given how closely aligned the elves and Aragorn are, and given how closely aligned Aragorn and Hope are, that Hope is then tied up to this issue of moral goodness. When Elrond is being hopeless about Aragorn, he's treated by the films as if he's a bit of a villain. Denethor is obviously incredibly visibly hopeless and is treated as an arch-villain. Boromir, hopeless, is a villain or a point of antagonism until he has just an ounce of hope at the end, and that's his quote-unquote redemption. 
And I do think it is actually significant that one of the, you know, even as we allude to in the title of this podcast, that Boromir's real redemption isn't complete until he effectively swears fealty to Aragorn. He says, go, go to Minas Tirith and protect our, protect my people, protect our people. And that's the moment at which Boromir's redemption is complete. The film does not let Boromir's redemption be complete when he is saving Merry and Pippin. And that I think is really significant because it does not, like, effectively does not let Boromir die until he shows hope again. And that's a huge, huge, huge problem because lots of the characters in the books are totally hopeless and they don't need the hope to keep being morally good and to keep doing what is right. They just need a sense of duty. Now, whether or not that's politically good is, is a totally different thing, but I think it leads to these very strange assessments of the characters in the book and, or the characters in the film and, you know, specifically, of course, Boromir. Boy, I wish I could fight with you, but uh, that's that's pretty well reasoned. I got nothing. Um, I also, you know, haven't thought about this that much. Um, and mostly also because the films are my Ur text. They're where I start my reading from and not the adaptation or the idea of adaptation rather. But I don't think I can argue with anything you just said. Um, I, I have to say, so. basically, all of this is uh, CG Logsdon's uh, <laughs> logic. I, I basically lifted their whole Twitter thread, so I will promise to put that out uh, when this episode comes out, so that I'm not just like straight up uh, stealing. <laughs> yeah. No, I th- no, I think it's fine. I think it's real good, and we will share it um, because I think that'll be helpful. Um, but. I just think it's one of those things where it's almost like when blockbuster movies talk about hope, I don't give it much thought because I think it's like the most simplistic idea of that. Um, and I do think Tolkien, like you argued, or C.G. Logsdon argued, uh, put way more thought into it than I'm putting into it or per- probably the film did. Um, it's just like, oh, hope, you know, we just kind of, it's like it's like Star Wars when they talk yes, about like, light. Yeah. We, you just kind of like inherently <laughs> assume that's good. Yeah. Um, you know, I know the recent canon is trying to, nuance that further but i think that's just kind of where my brain turned off and i didn't even think to pursue ideas down this path but i think it's brilliant i think it's great i thank you uh i thank you for bringing it to this podcast um, <laughs> this is like I'm, what happens when you're desperate to defend boromir at all costs is like you end up like balls deep in the dumbest arguments in human history being like it's not his fault he's perfect well, I mean, you know, I'm not one of those people because I have to like the guy who played Ned Stark. So <laughs> Boromir for life. Um, but I do actually think I, I never really had a really negative opinion of Boromir, whether, you know, in kayfabe or like as an analyst or critical person outside of it. But I do think my appreciation for Boromir has skyrocketed since we started doing this uh, podcast. Hell yes. Propaganda works. <laughs> We talked a lot about Galadriel already, and by God, we probably have a lot more to say. <laughs> Let's talk about how she looks in this film, how she's framed, and how she sounds that puts her on a level separate from all the other cast. A lot can be attributed to Kate Blanchett, who is one of the most talented and charismatic actors around. Whether in more serious affairs like Carol or The Aviator, or more pulpy fun like Thor Ragnarok and Ocean's 8, Blanchett always draws the eye, a singularity of performance that you can't escape. I apologize for the movies I sampled there uh, from her oeuvre. <laughs> and perhaps the eye is the best place to start, as her eyes are framed like no one else's in the saga. A lot of characters get the extreme close-up treatment in these films, but almost always, it's the entirety of the actor's face. Frodo, Gandalf, Aragorn, Arwen, Theoden, I feel like we could all picture a dozen close-ups on their faces. But with Galadriel, we zoom in even more, so that we have frames that are almost just her eyes and the bridge of her nose. 
We start seeing them as Frodo enters Lothlorien, and when she speaks of the Great Eye of Sauron, her own eyes bug out, all the more creepy for how zoomed in we are on her face. As emotionally forward as these movies are broadly, she's even more in your face. She's in your head. She is laying your soul bare, able to see every hidden jealousy and desire and hope within you. We see the toll her gaze has on Boromir, for example. Yes, and this is brilliant. And I actually want to mention two things here, um, only because I was just reminded of a like a Twitter beef I was getting in the other day, which is the issue of like gaze and the male gaze. And obviously that is like a specific um, film word. Um, but people were talking about the issue of gaze and silence of the lambs and how there is a horror element to uh, men looking at women. Um, and I think it is interesting both here in this context, because there is something terrifying about the way that Gladrio looks at uh, everybody and, you know, by virtue of what this thing is, uh, they're all men. Um, but the, the focus on the eyes is very similar to a lot of the shots in uh, Silence of the Lambs. Um, and I think that is a really cool and interesting thing. Um, and I wonder um, the extent to which like this notion of being seen um, in, in the 1990s and the sort of pre- uh, pre-surveillance world really uh, plays a lot more strongly than it does now. Um, because, you know, when I'm looking at these scenes with um, Galadriel, I'm noticing not the fact that her gaze is so intense, but um, the fact that her makeup um, doesn't exist to make her look younger. Um, and this could just be because, like, I'm a makeup person generally, so I'm not, like, thinking, oh my god, Kate Blanchett looking at me horrifying. I'm thinking, hmm, I wonder what, like, mascara they use there because all of her lashes look perfectly separate. But one of the things that's really interesting in her makeup here is that um, even though she's only, like, 30, Kate Blanchett's only 30 when she's filming these, she definitely doesn't look 30. She looks a bit older. Um, and I want to say a bit older in terms of what... 30 year olds in Hollywood are allowed to look like, which is obviously not what 30 year olds in the real world are allowed to look like. But she is not being played to look younger than she is. And when they zoom in, you can literally see her crow's feet and it is impeccable. It is absolutely incredible. It just delights me. You can see her crow's feet. You can see lines under her eyes. You can see her pores. I think it is such a brilliant little bit of filmmaking because it adds a humanness to an otherwise like totally ethereal and almost like impenetrable character. There is this sense of like she is flesh and blood. And when you then contrast that to the eye of Sauron, the other like big eyes in, in this film, it's totally devoid of any of that sort of like like natural or human texture. And I think it really just rocks that they were like, we're gonna let Kate Blanchett look like people. We're not gonna airbrush the fuck out of her. And I, I, I think it is phenomenal. Yeah, no, as you say, this juxtaposes Galadriel as the opposite of Sauron, as the good eye to his bad eye in the most simple sense. If Sauron is all that is dark and evil about the world, then Galadriel, as the films portray, <laughs> represents the light, a world without shadow and decay. The tragedy is, of course, that both are fleeting. To defeat Sauron is to resign the elves to the utter west to lessen their power here in Middle-earth. Even Galadriel's whispers in your head have a counterpart in Sauron, who murmurs his commands through the ring and Palantir throughout these movies. The Lothlorien theme contains the same choral and harp elements we've discussed at length before, especially in Rivendell. But it also introduces a slightly more ominous tone as it isn't the safe space that was the last homely house on the left. I want to quote this passage from Doug Adams' The Music of the Lord of the Rings films. In style, Lothlorien is the most eastern and exotic of all the elves' music. 
This is Lothlorien as a land of mystery, scored with plaintive female chorus and a trickle of monochord, nay, and sarangi. The writing is emotionally unreadable, neither sad, happy, aggressive, nor passive, but aloof. Rivendell is more about learning and knowledge, says Shore, but this is different. This is a more mysterious world of elves. They could be bad, they could be good. You're not really sure. The voices carry it. Shore comments, this is a middle, middle earth of thousands of years ago. When I started doing research, I started thinking about Gregorian chants and so on. Back to me, Manu, not Doug Adams or Howard Shore. In terms of being more Eastern, Shore looked at Arabic music and their modes, namely the Makam Hijaz. Makam is an Arabic mode of music tied to a place or context, and the Hijaz is often used for mourning, which informs these scenes following Gandalf's fall. But it's also used during Galadriel's prologue in the opening, which could speak to the tragic and bittersweet elements of the story we're about to see. So you just heard the Lament for Gandalf as sung by Elizabeth Fraser in the films. It is part of the Lothlorien track as found on the Fellowship of the Ring soundtrack. The, the Lament itself is two verses, the first sung in Quenya, the second sung in Sindarin, but I will give you the translation of uh, the two verses. And this is a raw translation, uh, and it doesn't always maintain the punctuation, so if I get the meter or um, any of that kind of wrong, I apologize. Aloran, who once was, sent by the lords of the west to guard the lands of the east, wisest of all Maiar, what drove you to leave, that which you loved. Mithrandir, Mithrandir, O pilgrim gray, no more will you wander the green fields of this earth. Your journey has ended in darkness. The bonds cut, the spirit broken, the flame of Anor left this world, a great light extinguished. The only words from the books uh, of that song are Mithrandir, Mithrandir, O pilgrim gray. The rest is all conjured up for these films. And it possibly makes book people mad. Um, the lyrics imply truths that the elves themselves may not have known uh, at the time that Gandalf fell. Me, it doesn't really bother me because as this moment exists in the film, the lament for Gandalf is mostly kind of not an Easter egg, but like the actual words to it are Easter eggs. Um, they're not really explained diegetically in the cinematic experience. So to me, it's just them kind of fleshing something out so they could have something a little more complete to include in the actual cinematic adaptation. Yep. I basically agree with that. Like, I feel like if, if you were at the point where you hear the song, you go to translate it at that point, you're getting mad. Like you've, you've played yourself. You've been owned. Like the, the song rocks. It's beautiful. Uh, Elizabeth Fraser does it beautifully. And I love listening to it. And who really cares if the elves wouldn't have known to write these lyrics exactly. <laughs> Thank you. 
folly it may seem, said Haldir. Indeed, in nothing is the power of the Dark Lord more clearly shown than in the estrangement that divides all those who still oppose him. We're now in our token token book section, and there's no real point to that quote. I just like it. I hate to be the seventh grader on this pod repeating the obvious themes about stories about stories and all that, but I do think the enemy's victory happens when we divide ourselves is a good one in a time where we all search for solidarity solidarity in a hyper-atomized and individualist culture. Next, I want to talk about Nimrodel, which is a river named after an elf who once lived in Lothlorien. Yes, and her name was, surprisingly, Nimrodel. <laughs> um, and she lived in Lothlorien before anybody else got there. And she dwelt basically on the riverside um, and only spoke the, the, uh, the, the, the tongue, her native tongue, her mother tongue. And she did not bother learning Sindarin or Quenya or any of the other uh, elven language variants. And she got really, really upset. She was a bit of a nimby. She got really, really upset by, by all of the new elves moving into the area um, and um, was effectively like, these guys are ruining this golden wood that I love so much. They're coming in, they're developing everything, um, and uh, I, I want them gone. The uh, king of the elves then, Amroth, uh, who is a Sindar elf, uh, came to kind of appease her, um, and they, they ultimately fell in love. Um, and... Uh, she quite rightly was like, I love you, but I won't marry you, uh, which is dead funny, uh, given the whole like chastity thing. Anyways, uh, in Kazadum, the Balrog awakes, um, and, uh, like quite a few of the other various elf women that we see, um, she responds quite strongly to this like changing, uh, I, I don't know, like ether, I guess. Like she, the the vibes quite literally are bad enough to start killing her, and which is kind of what Harwin does in these films as well. It's, it's very weird. I I do not like it as a plot point. But anyways, Nimrodal, she starts to feel like shit because the Balrog has awoken, and um, and she ran to Fangorn Forest as her way of like escaping the the bad vibes which is dead funny given the later context um amroth came chasing after her and was like it's okay we'll do and we'll do what we can to make these things this place peaceful again restore the golden wood to what you loved and they have some various uh adventures and then eventually get ready to sail west um and as they are sailing um she or no sorry they they don't sail they get separated while they are going to the havens uh at um Avalon to sail west um Amroth gets to the ship before her um and there's a storm that kind of pushes the ship out of port um and and she's not there she's not on the boat um he dives off the the ship to go um after her um and he basically never shows up again. Um, by the time she gets to the port and and realizes that he's drowned, that he's dead, um, she basically exiles herself. She's she's miserable. She's incredibly disappointed with like all of existence, and she goes to settle in a river in what is now uh, Gilrain, um, and. Um, she she died there. Um, well, we don't know if she died there. She's another one of these elven women that get these like big question marks at the end of their uh, story because it's like, well, you know, romantically it sounds like she 
we don't know what she did. Her story is lost to time, but realistically, she's probably dead. Um, and uh, the elves of Lothorian, in her honor, named this river for her, and it's one of these like untouched bits of land in Lothorian. Um, just a, a cheerful story all around. Oh, that's great. I'm very cheered up uh, to talk about this next thing, the blindfold thing, in fact. Whoa. The, el- the elves of Lothlorien were not very friendly to the dwarves, at least not trusting of them. When the fellowship enters, Gimli is asked to go blindfolded so that his kin will not witness the beauty of the golden wood. Gimli is upset, but Aragorn shows some leadership here, maybe questionable, and says they all go b- blindfolded if Gimli must. Legolas is cranky about this, but they do it for a bit before word arrives from the lady that they need not be blindfolded. And now we'll move on to Celeborn, that guy we pretty much ignored, and the movie pretty much ignores as well. Uh, He is played by Martin Kosokas, or Kosokas, I'm sorry, I do not know how to pronounce his last name. Celeborn translates to Silver Tree in Cinderin, uh, but his original name is Teleporno, which is how we used to get our rocks off long before the days of online internet porn. <laughs> Galadriel's husband, or he is Galadriel's husband, going back to early in the First Age. Um, he is noted as distrusting dwarfs. Um, I think he might have been the one who initially made that command for Gimli. I can't remember off the top of my head. And over the years, he slowly moved south and east to oppose the darkness. Yep. Yeah, he's such a he's such a nothing character in the movies. That is basically fine. Uh, I just feel like a, a very contrary uh, inclination to defend him, which is that he's not really in canon as useless as the memes make him seem. Uh, dies, uh, I'm really, really fighting for my life there on that not really as useless. Um, but he does serve a, a larger purpose, which is that um, he exists to prove that there is like benefit in non-flashy leadership. All the elves around him are like histrionic drama queens, um, and Celeborn is largely stable, clever, not really a narcissist. He does his job, he does his job well, and that's really it. And uh, I, I think his existence is basically an argument for uh, chilling out sometimes and just doing your job. I think we're going to save a big chunk of this for next week. Uh, Nenya, uh, Galadriel's ring, the ring of adamant or the ring of water. Do you want to say anything about it now or do you want to save it for next week? What if I say um, the story of Galadriel's ring is Nenya goddamn business? Ooh, I like that. (laughs) Until next week when it will be our goddamn business. Um, I also do want to, for full disclosure, say me and Emily made the same joke, except her joke, Nenya goddamn business, is an episode earlier than mine. So she wins. This is me doing proper joke colonialism. (laughs) Uh, she is in the uk after all and i am of south asian descent so (laughs) oh no i have to be canceled now (laughs) fuck (laughs) canceled on your very own podcast (laughs) uh next we'll talk about karen amaroth is it karen or is it saren uh yeah karen karen damn karens (laughs) it's the ancient hill of the king and from there you could hear the sea Um, In the books, uh, Frodo looks out from here, um, and he's able to, I think, get a full 360 kind of view around from this hill. It's high enough above the treetops. Uh, One of the things he does buy is Dol Guldur, which, again, is where Sauron set up as a necromancer back during the story of The Hobbit and previous to that. Um, Dol Guldur does get a little bit more play in the Lord of the Rings books, just mentioning that Bad stuff is happening there and possibly encroaching onto the woods of Lothlorien from there, but it's never really detailed. 
Um, the other thing about Karen Amroth I want to mention is that this is where Aragon proposed to Arwen and maybe the location of her grave as well. Yeah, um, when um, Arwen has her, uh, well, attempts to have her chat with Aragorn about how shitty being immortal is, um, and he straight up dies on her, she wanders along um, by herself uh, up to Rivendell and then to Lothorian, and she dies alone on Karen Amroth, which is, again, another lovely, cheerful story about elvish women for you. And then the last thing I want to add is that when we're talking about the lament for Gandalf, Frodo wrote his own lament which I seem to have deleted from the show notes. <laughs> I, thought I, I thought I pasted it here, damn it. <laughs> All right, well, give me one second just to pull it up. Cool. I wasn't going to read it in full, but I just did one. <laughs> oh, damn it. This is how history gets destroyed. <laughs> it's a story about stories. <laughs> All right, so the last thing we want to talk about today is Frodo's lament for Gandalf. After hearing the Elvish version, he decided to write his own song, which, you know, it's out there. You can look up Frodo's lament for Gandalf. But after Frodo sings his lament, which is in Westron, uh, Sam says there really should be a verse about his fireworks, and it's really cute. He says, the finest rockets ever seen. They burst in stars of blue and green, or after thunder golden showers came falling like a rain of flowers. And it was kind of mean that the elves kind of snickered at this, I think, as Emily reminded me a little bit ago. Yeah, the elves are such bastards about the Hobbit's poetry. Like, that is, like, it's, you know, it's pedestrian, but it's lovely and it's full of emotion. And these elves are such wankers. Like, honestly, I think the correct end to Lord of the Rings is Sauron is destroyed. Aragorn immediately turns around and starts wiping out the elves. Um, yeah, don't think too hard into that, too long into that in the context of the new Witcher TV series where that's actually the done thing and it's quite grim. But in a funny, jokey way, get rid of the elves. Um, I think we should probably wrap up there because I think we started this episode with Emily saying, I hate the elves, I hate the elves, I hate the elves. <laughs> um, so I feel like we really bring it around back circle if we just end right here. <laughs> So that closes the book on this chapter of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com and mybromycapmypod on Twitter and Instagram. You can support this podcast by subscribing to my Patreon, patreon.com slash manuclearbomb, which goes towards this and all the other projects I'm working on. Which manuclearbomb? Hey, that's me. I've been Manu. You can find me covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sans Frontieres. And I've been Emily, and you can find me engineering Elven Genocide over at JR Tweeting on Twitter. Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my kink.
I'm never going to be able to get that image out of my head of like John Noble is done at the leading a kick line. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. 